uh, today's program, I should say. We should commence, though, today's program in a conversation about the personalization of American capitalism with Professor David Schultz. The personalization of American capitalism. Let me break it down for you. In a recent uh, release by Forbes of the richest individuals in the world, we see a stark reminder of the concentration of wealth, particularly in these United States. Topping the list is Bernard Arnault of LVHM with a staggering net worth of $211 billion. However, what is even more striking is that the majority of the top 10 wealthiest individuals are located in the U.S. You hear that? The majority of the top 10 richest folk in the world are located in this country with a combined wealth of $786 billion, $786. In fact, out of the 25 richest individuals globally, 17 are Americans. While some may perceive this accumulation of wealth as a testament to the American dream, the connection between economic power and political influence raises important questions, I think, about the fairness and viability of our democratic system. The top billionaires in this country don't just possess vast economic resources, but they also wield considerable clout to protect and further their financial interests. And so when we come forward, we'll commence our conversation about the personalization of American capitalism with Hamline University Professor of Political Science David Schultz on KBLA Talk 15. We'll be playing Prince all three hours of today's program celebrating what would have been his 65th birthday. Prince, of course, from Minneapolis, uh, Paisley Park, specifically lo- located in uh, Chanhassen, uh, Minnesota. And it just so happens that our guest right now joins us on the line from Minneapolis. David Schultz is a Hamline University professor of political science, and I'm honored to have him back on this program. Professor Schultz, how are you today, sir? I am doing great, and we are celebrating his legacy today in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, and yeah, and I think there's some events going out at um, out in Chanhassen. I'm not sure, but but he certainly is a um, a hero in this area. No, he is a hero around the world. Uh, people loved him, and I, I've thought many times as as close as he and I were for almost 30 years. Uh, I don't know that he knew how beloved he really was. I mean, he passed away. Uh, I was just uh, just so moved by the tributes to him all around the world. People turning buildings purple and purple flags and purple everything. And so um, I, I, I've often wondered whether or not he uh, knew how beloved he really was, what he might have made of all that happened and has happened and the love that still persists for him uh, even uh, after his uh, untimely and tragic uh, death. But we celebrate today uh, the life and legacy of Prince Rogers Nelson, the pride of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Let me go to Minneapolis right now and get back to uh, Dr. Uh, Professor David Schultz uh, about about uh, the personalization of American capitalism. I saw a piece that you wrote about this, a brilliant piece, and I wanted to have you back on to sort of interrogate it. But uh, before I ask any specific questions, tell me why you wrote this piece and what you wanted us to wrestle with. Well, I've always been interested in the problem that, you know, that we have so much wealth in this country, but we have so many poor people in this country, and to try to understand the relationship between the two. And one of the things that I was flipping through, I can't remember where I was, I saw something where Forbes had their list of of the richest people in the world, and I started looking at it and thinking about it that, you know, we worship in this country. I don't know why. We worship really rich people we have over time. And I thought to myself, you know, 
the more super rich people we have, that also means what? The more poor people we're going to have. There's a relationship between the two. And there's a relationship between this idea of saying that there's this American dream where people have some people hit not just become millionaires, but, but the billionaires or something like that. And so I wanted to look at how rich are some people in America and sort of put that you know, off to the side and say, what do we know about the richest people in America, richest people in the world, and then what does it say ab- ab- about who they are? And, and what I came up with, and the, you know, the title of the piece was called 10 Men, 1 Trillion, and the Personalization of American Capitalism. And I just want people to reflect on this for a second. There are 10 people, 10 individuals um, um, in America who collectively are worth $1 trillion. Um, that is more money than the bottom 50%, the rest of the 50% of America um, has. That's, I mean, just think about that. Uh, 10 people, $1 trillion. And what does it say about America? Mm. Um, let me start with this. Uh, you said a moment ago that um, the more rich people we have, the more poor people we're going to have. Uh, make that connection for me. Why is it that just because they're more rich people, they're automatically more poor people? Well, what's going to happen? Remember, at the end of the day, how do rich people make their money? They make their money off of the workers. And the more money um, that they can sort of extract from workers, um, that means the less money that the workers have, the more money the really rich have. That's the real simple relationship here. Um, I, 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 I don't know. If I were in the classroom, I could probably write some kind of an equation on the board. Mm. Um, um, that, that you know, I don't know how to write it out right now. But basically, they are super rich because what? They earn their money off of the backs of the working class in America. They earn their money by what? Not paying taxes, by by paying minimum wage, if less, if not less than minimum wage. They made their money by forcing people, in many cases, um, to work still in unfair labor conditions. At the end of the day, um, the reason why we have a small concentration of super rich people is because why? We have a political economic system that favors their interests and the part that's even scarier, it's not just that they have made their, uh, made their money, but they're now in a position to convert, I'll use the phrase, their economic, um, the resources from their economic marketplace can now be used to help them in the political marketplace. They lobby to make sure that taxes don't go up. They lobby to get special breaks for their organizations. They use their economic resources as political tools to stay in place to keep the rest of us down. That's that's the connection we want to make in terms of thinking about it here. We're going to spend uh, time in this hour, of course. Uh, that's why we're calling it the personalization of American capitalism. We'll talk about uh, the impact that their wealth allows them to have on our body politic uh, and how the rest of us in this demos are are subject to that and oftentimes uh, punished uh, by that. But let me, let me stay with this notion that you raised a moment ago, that the system favors their interest. I'm not naive in, in, in addressing this issue, but tell me more about the ways in which our system of governance, uh, the way we do things, our, our capitalist system, how does it favor their interest? Well, I want to put together capitalism and and and. The, our supposed democracy at the same time, because they really sort of work together sure. in terms of it. But but basically what, I mean, the, stru- the structure is, well, at least on the surface, it may look like we have a democracy, but we live in a political system that allows people to convert their economic resources 
into political resources. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing right off the bat. So as people get rich, um, they then lobby against what? Higher taxes to redistribute. They they lobby against um, um, changing, let's say, minimum wage laws. They lobby against health care reform. They use their resources to prevent any kind of political changes in the system. So that's sort of the core of it. But when I talk to my students, I have to take them back to the beginning. And on the very first day of class, I write on the board a word. Um, The word is WASP, W-A-S-P, dollar sign, M21. And and I I kid and I say, I pronounce it WASP 21. And I say, the people who created this country were white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males who were rich um, on on at least age 20, if not older. I said, that's the profile of the people who created our political system. And then I talk about our voting laws. I talk about who votes. I talk about who serves in Congress, the profiles of our elected officials, the profiles of the major economic elites. And I say to them, my students, is it by coincidence or by structural design that the same people or the profile of the people who created this country look almost identical to those who are running it today? And, and I'm pushing the argument here and I'm pushing my audience here to think about this. We want to say that we have a system that's captured by we the people, you know, the first three words of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, it's a constitution, it's a political economic system that seems to replicate itself to favor the same type of people over time. It was for many years, it was about the voting issue. Um, and it's also about, again, about capitalism and about rich people being able to use their resources again to keep themselves in power. That's, that's the system. Think of American capitalist democracy as what a machine, a machine that replicates itself and reproduces um, the outputs to keep certain people in power at the expense of others. Um, I, I argue, um, we argue, and by, by we I mean Cornell West. I mentioned Dr. West as our guest tomorrow in hour one um, about his uh, announcement that he's running for president of these United States. Um, Dr. West and I have been friends for over 30 years and have done a lot of things together, including writing a New York Times bestselling book called The Rich and the Rest of Us, A Poverty Manifesto. We wrote that book some years ago. It shot straight to the top of the New York Times list. Uh, I'm grateful for that, as is Dr. West all these years later. Uh, Again, it's called The Rich and the Rest of Us. And in that book, we talk about a couple of things. We talk about the fact that America, in many respects, Professor uh, Schultz, was a corporation before it was a country. If I had time, I'd unpack that. But in many ways, America was a corporation before it was a country. And we talk, of course, about this gap between the rich and the rest rest of us. That's why it's called the rich and rest of us. This gap continues to grow. But we argue in the book that you can't talk about poverty without also talking about income inequality and economic Mm -hmm. immobility. Those things go together. Mm -hmm. Poverty, income inequality, and economic immobility. I want to ask you about the latter two. Um, We've talked about the fact that the more rich people there are, the more poor people they are. But how do you juxtapose? How do you square the fact that as as these persons have gotten richer over the years, um, we are wrestling ever more so with income inequality and economic immobility. Well, they actually all go together at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this great myth. There's this wonderful myth that's really sort of been what, a core to America. You know, the idea of what anybody can grow up to be a millionaire, you know, mm-hmm. whatever metaphor, anybody can, you know, the American dream or something like that, you know, the economic mobility argument, you know, whatever, again, or anybody can hit a home run, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what I point out 
and, and I'm not the first to do this. There's incredible studies and other studies to do this. If we compare the United States to our peers, and what I mean by our peers, let's say France, Germany, Sweden, you know, other countries like that, um, there's a standard index called the Gini Index that measures inequality. We have, since the 1970s, we have fallen from a, a somewhat unequal to the most unequal democracy, if we call it that, um, in the world. Um, and with that also, our social mobility, the ability, and I'll measure it one way, the ability of people in the bottom fifth to hit the home run to get to the top fifth, or the people in the top fifth to strike out and go to the bottom, if I can use a baseball metaphor, mm-hmm. um, social mobility has largely frozen in the United States. And again, again, among major democracies, only England, um, which is a monarchy still, still is a monarchy, um, has worse social mobility. So this idea that we're the land of, of, of social mobility, anybody can rise to the top, that we're um, a country um, of, of equality, largely the data, this, this is census data, this is Forbes data, um, et cetera, et cetera, largely refutes all of this. We've really, especially since the 1970s, um, have economically stagnated. And exactly as the title of your book points out here, there is the few and then there's the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, here, again, no, no, no naivete here. Um, but let me go back to something else you raised earlier because it occurs to me I want to link something, link a few things up here. Why is it that you think in this country, uh, unlike any place else in the world, we worship the rich. I've traveled all around the world, as I'm sure you have as well, and there are rich people in every country, but there's no place where the rich are worshipped, and I'm using that word deliberately, yeah. the way they are in this country. Why is that? That is a really good question because I point out the fact that in a previous era, it was what? It was the Vanderbilts, the DuPonts, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, you know, I don't know, the Kennedys, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's our American aristocracy. I don't know. But you're right. We, 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 we so much worship them. We think that they're the embodiment of the American dream. Or, yeah, or maybe there are, maybe since we don't have an, a, a, um, a kingdom here, um, this is our, our economic kingdom or something. But it's so fascinating that we worship them. And I think it's even more interesting is that at the time, these, I mean, these are like the old, you know, like the Vanderbilts and all that. They're the robber barons. They're running the sweat factories. They're treating workers horribly. Mm-hmm. And then what happens of, is that the Rockefellers and all that die. They leave their money to charity. And now we suddenly worship, we even worship them even more. And we beg for their money um, because we think they're such benevolent people. No, remember how they got their money. They got their money. Money from robbing from the poor, from people of color. And, and what's, what's your indictment then, to your point, your brilliant point now, what's your indictment, Professor Schultz, of um, worker wages being stagnant, but CEO salaries have gone through the roof? Well, exactly hit it on the score here. I'm, I'm trying to think about the, what is it like, something like the, the ratio is about like 400 or 500 to 1. Or to 1, exactly. Ridiculous. Yeah, something yeah. like that in terms of CEO salary to uh, workers. Minimum wage has largely stagnant, hasn't changed very much in many, many years. Um, I mean, think about it. You know, one of my teachers said it really once many years ago when someone said, um, um, why are workers, why, are, why is labor so weak in the United States? And, he, and, and his answer was, because capitalism is so powerful. Um, and I thought that was a really good answer there, mm-hmm. is that, again, it's the ability of, of economic elites to say, we got to where we are, we are not going to let 
anybody take it away from us, and we are going to do our best to make sure that we have a, a constant supply chain of workers, um, low paid, um, that we don't have a, a good welfare state in here to take care of people um, if they get sick or ill or something like that. We're going to make sure that people are what? Yeah. Hungry and desperate to work. Yeah. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, uh, I want to come to the, the, the sweet spot, as it were, uh, or the troubling spot, depending on how one looks at it of this conversation about the personalization of American capitalism. And that is the impact that their wealth allows them to have on our experiment in democracy. The impact that their money allows them to have on this experiment in democracy. We'll get to that when we come forward. Talking with uh, David Schultz, Hamline University Professor of Political Science, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Music Month, and we're celebrating a different artist every single day. And as you've already heard... Today, that artist is Prince, because today is his birthday, June the 7th. Uh, it's also my uh, my trainer's birthday. Uh, Terry Claybaugh is uh, celebrating his birthday on June 7th, as is my brother Maury. <laughs> so happy birthday uh, to Prince, um, who would have been 65 today, uh, to Terry Claybaugh and to my brother Maury. Happy birthday to all of y'all. And everybody else celebrating birthdays on June 7th. Uh, but as we celebrate a different artist every day, Prince was the obvious choice today, given what this day means. I miss him dearly, but his music will forever live on. Speaking of Minneapolis, our guest in this hour is on the line from Minneapolis because he's a professor at Hamline University, uh, professor of political science at uh, uh, at this university that is uh, based in Minnesota. And so he, uh, I, I didn't, it didn't, it wasn't planned that way that our guest in the first hour <laughs> would be from Minneapolis, but it all works out and it's a beautiful thing. We're talking in this hour, in case again, you've just tuned in about the uh, personalization of American capitalism, talking about the fact that uh, there are uh, 17 uh, of the 25 richest folk in the world who live in this country. The, uh, uh, 10 of those 17 have a combined wealth of $786 billion. The numbers are staggering. And anybody hating on people for getting rich, I trust me, I've been rich and poor in my life, and rich is better. Nobody's hating on the rich. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what does it mean that there are just a handful of people who control so much wealth in this country? Uh, and that wealth allows them to have an outsized impact on our experiment in democracy and that's what I want to talk about right now with our guest, David Schultz. Professor Schultz, uh, let me go straight to that. Um, and, and, and before I get to the impact they can have on democracy, it seems to me you can't talk about that without talking about the ways in which our system, as you put earlier, uh, uh, plays to their interests and allows them to spend an inordinate amount of their money uh, on our political process. Put another way, it seems to me that you have to condemn, as I suspect you will, the money in our politics. Uh, somebody once said that money is the mother's milk of politics. I put it this way. You know, Washington is bought and bossed by big money and big business. So before we get to them and how they use their money to influence this experiment in democracy, what about the systems and the structures and the policies and the Supreme Court decisions that allow them to do this in the first place? You're absolutely correct. I'm going to start with the most critical one, which is the fact that, that the Supreme Court has ruled, especially the Roberts Court, that what money is a form of protected speech. And why that's important is because this is a court, even though we never really well-regulated money in our political system, it has essentially deregulated it. It has said that 
people have the right to spend as much money as they want, not just um, for the purposes of, of, let's say, trying to influence the campaigns and elections, but also can spend, which I think is even more critical, um, unlimited amounts of money to be able to try to um, lobby and influence the decision-making process. It's not just lobbying Congress. It's lobbying all the administrative agencies that make all the critical rules. It's lobbying at the state level. It's lobbying at the local level. I mean, we, I mean, we have an incredibly small number of people who are able to use their resources to hire lawyers, to hire lobbyists, to hire um, um, supposed experts, you know, who will do studies that will claim and say, um, I don't know, tobacco doesn't hurt people or, 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 or whatever, whatever, or, or polluting the atmosphere is, isn't a big deal or something like that. But my point being is that is that we have multiple sources where, again, people can convert economic resources over into political resources. And the Supreme Court has essentially said that is a form of protected speech. That's one way. But the other story, and you probably have talked about this several other times, is over time in terms of how the Supreme Court um, has, has not just this current one, but past ones, has upheld what? Laws that make it harder to vote for people. It, uh, we have laws in place in this country that makes it difficult for ex-felons to be able to vote, in some cases you know, permanently disenfranchising them. I mean, we can go into a long history about how um, despite the fact that after the Civil War we had the 15th Amendment adopted, um, there was a concerted effort uh, during Jim Crow and beyond to keep people of color from being able to vote. Uh, and the courts have given legal sanction to all of this. And so that, that, that's what we want to combine together here is how, how um, the courts, the law, Congress um, has, has put in place laws that keep people down. Mm. How would you respond um, to the criticism, uh, and this is legitimate, I've heard it many times before, that there is class warfare in this country, but we are the ones, David Schultz and Tavis Smiley, are the ones waging that class warfare. The argument goes like this, that pieces like the one you've written that we're talking about today, 10 men, $1 trillion, and the personalization of American capitalism. That's your powerful piece that made me want to get you on the phone and have you on this program once again. Um, your piece is class warfare. This conversation is class warfare. Tavis Smiley's commentary is class warfare, but it's class warfare against the rich in this country. I'm going to reverse it and say there is a class war going on in this country, and one side is fighting. That is the rich. Um, they have understood um, that in order to stay rich, they have to wage the fight. They have to wage the battle. And, and they have been done doing it, let's say, it's, I think throughout American history they've done it, but I'm just going to say specifically since the 1960s, 1970s, I'm sorry, 1970s. And so I would argue the fact that they've waged war against what? Against unions in the United States. Mm. They've waged war against, against, let us say, collective bargaining. Um, they're trying to make it harder to vote. They're trying to make it more difficult um, for for average people to be able to run for office, third-party candidates. I know you're going to be talking to Cornell West tomorrow uh, about this, making it more difficult for third-party challenges to occur. So I would argue that you're right. There is class warfare going on. There is only one class fighting, except what? It's the rich that's doing the fight, and most of the rest of us um, have, have not, have not um, fought back. Most of the rest of us are worried about what? On a day-to-day basis, what? Getting up, going to work, making a paycheck, getting our kids off to school. Um, I mean, most of us just don't have the, um, what is it, the leisure or the resources 
to fight back. And, and it's exhausting for many of your listeners out there. They're probably exhausted at the end of the day of working, maybe doing two shifts or something like that. And I'll say to them, go, go off, go off and, 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 and do some political stuff. I, I like to tell the story that back in 2008, I was working at a radio or television station. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was the year Obama was running for president, um, first time. And they, they kept us all in that night. They had, they had a catered meal because they, they wanted all the reporters and everybody was working there staying. So I was talking to this woman, you know, who was the caterer, and she was a Hispanic woman. And I said to her, um, are you excited about the election? She goes, yes, I, lo- I love Barack Obama. I want to vote for him. And I said, did you vote yet? And she says, no, I can't vote. And I said, why? And she said, well, she said that if, if I were to take time off to go vote, um, that means I don't get a paycheck and I've got three kids home I've got to worry about. And she said, so what do I do? Put, put food on the table or do I go vote? Mm. That, capture, that captures the story that I want to tell right there, that on a, at, at the end of the day, many people have to worry about trying, trying to put food on the table and don't have the time um, or the energy to, to fight back. Yeah. As you were talking, uh, and I, I'm glad you shared that story. It's an arresting story, and there are many, many uh, persons in this country who fall into that category, just can't take time off uh, to go vote. Uh, say nothing of what you mentioned earlier of all the ways in which our uh, political process now is trying to make it, certainly the political right, trying to make it more difficult to vote. Even if you could take time off to go vote, they want to make it more difficult for you to exercise that precious right. But I was thinking as you were talking about the writer's strike here in L.A. right now, uh, that's what that writer's strike is all about. These corporations are making more money. They, they are minting money. Uh, these Hollywood institutions, Netflix and beyond, they're all minting money, uh, but the writers are being poorly paid and uh, their salaries have not kept up with the kinds of money these studios are making. That's what's at the heart of this writer's strike, even as we speak here in Los Angeles, California. When we come forward, speaking of uh, the media, I want to talk expressly uh, about the media and get uh, Professor Schultz's take on that. It seems to me that the media has a role to play in this because the media is always writing these stories and putting them on the cover of magazines and basically idolizing the rich in this country. There used to be in our newspapers uh, a page called the Labor Page. There's no longer a labor page. It's just the business page. There are business magazines, a plethora of them, but there are no workers magazines. There is no workers page in the newspaper. Even the media is in on this, uh, advancing the narrative that the rich matter more than the rest of us. I digress for the moment. We'll continue when we come forward on KBLA Talk. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's David Schultz, professor at Hamline University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Honored to have him on as we talk about this provocative piece that he authored called 10 Men. One trillion dollars and the personalization of American capitalism. Let me go straight to the media, Professor Schultz. You heard me say a moment ago uh, that the media is in on this because they are the ones who uh, who 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 idolize in in print, on television, everywhere you look. There are always stories about the rich in this country. Um, what's your indictment of the media in this regard? Well, first off, we have to remember the fact that the media is oftentimes owned by some of these really rich people, and we've got yeah, so, you know, you know, you know, so 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 you know, they're basically they're, they're PR arms of them. You know, I point out to my students that we've got basically more than five big media conglomerates that control over ninety percent vertically and horizontally. You know, of of, of let's say you know the um, um, the information and and the the media in the United States. I mean, 
And and when you start to look at some of these really big corporations, you know, you know, the way I describe it is to say that do you think, for example, that somebody like Comcast is going to report um, or, or Times Warner is going to report stories about what about bad behavior within their own organization? Or I used to point out at one point, you know, when was it General Electric used to own. Um, 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 was it NBC? Mm-hmm. I said, do you think General Electric is going to run a front, uh, run a, is going to have a lead story? General Electric is polluting the Hudson River? God, no, they're not going to do stuff mm-hmm. like that. To a large extent, corporate media has become what? the A corporate communications wing um, of rich, powerful corporations. And again, as I, as, as I point out, and I argue this in a different context here, is that we want to hope the media is going to perform what I call the First Amendment function. That is what provide the information we need to be able to make to make good decisions. We're hoping what in the classic argument that they're going to be the watchdog, you know, for the American people and, and protect them. Instead, what they have become um, large major corporations in which their news gathering critical functions are compromised by the corporate imperatives of making money. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what's happened at this point, is that the mainstream media is not going to cover these stories. They are going to idolize the rich because what? The rich own them. As, uh, as you were talking, I thought about two things, uh, uh, to your brilliant point. Uh, Fox News scarcely covered its <laughs> its settlement with Dominion uh, voting systems. They, they scarcely covered that because it didn't make them look good. So you, you it was mm-hmm. covered. It was covered everywhere except on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Uh, no surprise there. But but I also thought about uh, to your point about the rich owning this. There's a reason uh, these days that all these billionaires are trying to buy media properties. There's a reason Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. There's a reason that Elon Musk bought Twitter. There's a reason I could do, go. To, there's a long list of them, but there are sure. a handful of people who are intent on buying these media outlets. I assume uh, that that reality is not lost on you, Professor Schultz. That's exactly the point here is that Bezos, um, you know, for people who don't remember, he owns Amazon, he owns Whole Foods, he owns the Washington Post. Um, I'm trying to think of, and maybe you can help me out here, uh, I'm trying to think of the last time I saw a story in the Washington Post critical of Amazon. And if you say to me, I can't remember it either, I, 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 I think that's the right answer also. Or when was the last time the Washington Post talked about um, um, the unfair labor conditions, um, um, all kinds of problems going on in Amazon warehouses where, 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 where you, might, you probably know some of the stories too, forced mm-hmm. overtime, unsafe working conditions. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, what, what they, again, if I can use a distinction, there's a difference between journalism and corporate communications. This, they have now become corporate yeah. communications arms at this point. And their job is what? Is to make the corporations, to make these rich people look pretty and to, um, and, you know, Thin or tell their version of the story. I, I was thinking when I was when I was younger, um, there used to be something called labor notes that I used to subscribe to. I used to be a labor organizer, mm-hmm. um, published out of I think Detroit or something like that. It was like eight pages every every month. It came and it would report on labor news. But but that that was all I could think of um, mm-hmm. in recent history. I don't think there's any unless you know of one. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any national that, labor publication. That, that was my point. Um, that uh, there used to be literally in our papers a labor page, and there that that's that's long been gone. Now all you get is business news. Again, it's pushing that narrative that make the rich richer every single day in this country.
Conti. Our remaining moments with Professor David Schultz when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Also, I've got three minutes left in this conversation. I want to close by allowing you to spend as much time with that uh, three minutes uh, as you'd like, uh, unpacking for us what concerns you most about the impact on this experiment in democracy that the money of these billionaires uh, allows them to, uh, to move. I'm going to start with that phrase, we the people, the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. And Thurgood Marshall, former Supreme Court Justice, back in 1987, 200th anniversary of the Constitution, pointed out and said that at the time the Constitution of Britain, the promise of we the people was great but hardly realized. It was we, the rich white people, you know, who are property owners, slave owners, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why I start with that, his argument was, 200 years later, remember, he's writing back at the Bicentennial. He said it took a Bill of Rights, 27 amendments, a civil war, a civil rights revolution to get us somewhat closer to we the people. However, despite the progress we've made in the last 20 to 30, let's say 30 years since, since Thurgood Marshall wrote that, we unfortunately have gone backwards. We can point to the fact that the concentration of wealth in America is greater now than it was back in the 1970s and 1980s, that the gap between the rich and the poor is greater, that in many ways we have regressed. And the broader point I want people to understand at this point is that when we worship, when we worship these these 10 or 15 or 18, you know, 17 rich people um, and say, gosh, that's what I want to be. Well, maybe that would be nice. Maybe that would be nice, but these 10 people or 17 people are keeping the rest of us down. They are super rich because they are keeping the rest of us poor. And that's the point I want us to be thinking about here is the relationship between rich and poor and about how, even though I talked about it being personalization, it's about at the end of the day, the structures and institutions that are in place that enable them to stay rich. If my hero, Dr. King, were in this conversation right now, he'd remind us that too many of us are chasing the wrong things. We're chasing success when we ought to be chasing greatness. They're not the same thing. You can be successful without ever being great, but you never be great without being successful. King put it this way. Any of us can be great because any of us can serve. All it takes is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Be careful about what you are chasing. Maybe uh, so many of these people in Hollywood right now, everybody black I know wants to be a billionaire. That's the new thing, right? Everybody wants to be a billionaire. At one point, everybody wanted to have a jet. Everybody wanted to have a mansion. Now everybody wants to be on the Forbes list. Every Negro I know in Hollywood, everybody in the music business, everybody wants to be on the billionaires list. What's that all about? Kanye wanted to be on it. The Kardashians want to be on it. Everybody's trying to be on the billionaire list. Nobody chasing greatness. Everybody chasing success as defined by money. I digress for the moment. His piece is called 10 Men, $1 trillion, and the personalization of American capitalism. He is David Schultz, Hamline University professor of political science, hailing today from Minneapolis, the home of Prince Rogers Nelson. Professor Schultz, good to have you on. All the best to you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Have me on again, and thanks to the audience. We'll do it again. Thank you, sir. Hour two of Tabby Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.